running for BIPOC folks doesn't exist in a vacuum. Whatever institutional issues plagues them outside of running, they carry that into the running group. Welcome to the Shaco Podcast. I'm your host, Kate Van Buskirk. Just over two weeks ago, Mo Bassat, the co-founder of the Air Up There Run Crew, was out for a weekly run in Hamilton, Ontario. This Wednesday run is open exclusively to folks who are Black, Indigenous, and people of colour as a means of fostering community and support amongst traditionally marginalised groups. Mo and his fellow runners stopped in front of the police station to admire an art instalment when they were questioned by two officers alleging public concerns about suspicious behaviour. In this episode, Mo and his crewmates recount this experience with the police and explain the significance of creating safe, equitable, and inclusive spaces for everyone within the running community. My name is Mo or Mohammed Bassat. Uh, I am a runner in, in Hamilton. I live and work here. Uh, I'm one of the founders of the Air Up There Run Crew, and uh, as well as one of the co-conspirators at creating uh, the BIPOC exclusive run uh, here in Hamilton. I'm a social justice lawyer. I work for the Hamilton Community Legal Clinic, and uh, our mission is to create better access to justice for low-income and marginalized residents of the Hamilton community. Mo got into running around 2010, after his competitive basketball career ended. He was looking for a new athletic outlet, and credits running lore like Born to Run and stories of the legendary Steve Prefontaine with his initial interest in the sport. I'm a huge Kobe Bryant fan uh, and have been my whole life. And with Steve Prefontaine's like brashness was, uh, you know, really spoke to me because when I played basketball, I was a lot like that. Like I wore my heart on my sleeve. I was very passionate about, you know, our team's success. So seeing his story and, you know, not only as a runner, but also in his ability to stand up for other runners uh, so that they had uh, better access to funding and uh, notoriety, like that really spoke to me. And so, you know, it, it made me want to run. Like he, he inspired me to want to get out there and be the best I can. Mo started out running solo, working on his consistency and endurance. He was living in Ottawa at the time, and eventually joined the Bank Street running room. But he wasn't with them for long. Mo moved around a lot in those years, as his academic endeavors took him from city to city, and he always sought a running community wherever he landed. Before Hamilton, I, I was kind of bouncing around between places because of, uh, of school. I lived in Ottawa, then I lived in uh, Portland, Maine, and then I lived in Halifax, then to Toronto. And, you know, I would move around between groups. And the beautiful thing about running is that for the most part, it is very welcoming. Uh, at face value, it's very welcoming uh, and it's very accessible. So I kind of seeked out a lot of different running groups. Uh, and for me individually, personally, it, it wasn't hard to kind of walk into those spaces. I, and I know for some people, it, it can be really intimidating to enter a, a, a space, let alone a space where you can be so easily, uh, you know, your performance is looked at as better than or less than. Uh, so that was, I, I went from, you know, different running crews, Toronto, I ran with uh, Parkdale, uh, Unleashed, Mocha, Longboat. And then I, I eventually made my way to Hamilton uh, in 2018. And when I got here, there, like there are running groups. Uh, I just didn't see a running group that fit what I was looking for at the time. Like I, I think as I got older, I kind of had like this racial awakening. And, and as I began to prioritize myself and my community, I wanted to be in a running group that reflected that. In the back of my mind, I had always thought uh, it's it's interesting that I don't see more people that look like me in these spaces because I know what the actual sport gives to me. It was always something that like you feel. And I think for a lot of BIPOC people of color, they have that like it's like that inherent feeling where like you're not sure if you truly, truly belong. Like Olivia, a runner that runs with us, actually said it 
so eloquently yesterday, it feels like you're kind of like in the sunken place. You're the only person that reflects your background. And I think that that was like the hardest part. Like you just didn't see anything that looked like you. And, and perhaps not for myself that I wanted it. But I think when you're a person of color, there's like this inherent responsibility that goes on your shoulders that like you have to look out for your community. And it's really prevalent in both my Filipino and Lebanese background is once a door is open for yourself, uh, you want to make sure that it stays open for the rest of your community to walk through. And and that's what really mattered to me when, when it came to running at that point. I was like, I want to make sure that if I b- break open this door, I want to make sure that it's open for the rest of my community to walk through. So I created my own running crew uh, called Air Up There uh, in, at late 2018. Mo co-founded Air Up There with his friend Brad Kaur. But true to the crew spirit, their group doesn't adhere to the hierarchy of coaches or leaders. Mo says that everyone is considered a captain and is expected to support one another equally. I think I set the tone with what we wanted and what I wanted to see. And it drew those like-minded folks. And in drawing that, they helped to perpetuate our message and our mission to create a running crew that not only reflected the fact that we wanted to see more equity and inclusion and diversity, but also of people that had different body shapes uh, that can come to running. Uh, Sean is, uh, he always talks about how running is for everybody. Running is for big guys. And that's his message within our group is that he's trying to to reframe the idea that you have to look a certain way uh, when you run. And he is an amazing runner and he's such a big proponent for that at the same time as also being a champion for uh, racial equity within our running group. Not only is Mo a lawyer, a runner, and the co-founder of his crew, but he's also a guest contributor to Canadian Running Magazine. You wrote a lovely piece as a guest writer for Canadian Running Magazine for our web story following your speed project uh, completion. And I'd like to quote from that. You said, when the space isn't meant for you, doesn't cater to you, and no one looks like you, it won't draw you in. It makes you uncomfortable. And the title of that piece was The Speed Project DIY. And listeners will remember that we uh, spoke a bit about The Speed Project about a month and a half ago. And then the second half of that title is Radical Representation Creates Radical Participation. That's a really strong headline. I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about radical representation and radical participation. What does that mean to you? Uh, So for me, like I always thought about certain spaces and and especially like for example like stories that are written especially when you think about it as a runner you know the story of of running in itself can be told through either a white person's viewpoint or a person of color's viewpoint but a white person can easily relate to the 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 person of color's viewpoint or black person or indigenous person because running in itself is universal but the experience of being racialized that experience only falls on that racialized person. Like as much as I know so many white people are, are very well intentioned, they're never going to truly feel what that feels like. So for me, when I, when I think about creating radical representation, I wanted to create something that included so many people of color that you're like, wow, there's something happening here with where so many people that look like me are a part of it. You just want to walk over there. And and speaking specifically about the Speed Project, you know, I invited only a few people and I just kind of let the work do for itself. And, you know, us being congregated down by Coronation Park, so many people of color from different even running groups, from different teams, from the community, they just started showing up. And it drew them in. And similarly, at the same time, it, it drew in white folk. Uh, and when you when you create something that is radical, because it is radical in running to see more people of color and black people and indigenous people in that space than is normally represented, you're going to then see more of it. And that was that was the theme of what we saw uh, during that time. Everyone kept saying. I want to do this next year. I want to do that next year. And I I can't help but feel that that is a reflection of the representation that we had at that race. 
Part of this radical representation involved creating a weekly run exclusively for folks who are Black, Indigenous, and people of color. While the Air Up There run crew is open to everyone, Mo explains that there's deep value in these Wednesday BIPOC-exclusive meetups. This was something that I'd wanted to do for a really long time, but I think that it's probably my own personal internalized racism. I, I always felt that if I had started it, there would be certain backlash from the community. I was afraid that uh, they would see it as I'm being discriminatory towards the running community, towards white people, uh, that I wasn't including them, that I was creating more division. And so I was really hesitant. Like, So I had come up with this idea probably halfway through 2019 uh, because there's a, 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 lo- a local a movement practitioner here uh, her name is Robin Lacomber. She is the owner of this of a studio named Good Body Feel, which uh, you know has been uh, a lightning rod for me in terms of pushing the boundaries of what our a running group can mean. And they have a class called Melanin Moves, and it's a class specifically for BIPOC folk. And that was her mission. And she had told me that you know at first she wanted to create this space for BIPOC folk within her general yoga practice, but she kept finding that only one person would show up, two people would show up. But then when she took the plunge and made an only BIPOC folk exclusive group, suddenly she had 30 people show up and a wait list. And so she told me to just just go for it. Even if you get backlash, ultimately it's going to be so healing for the BIPOC community. I think after Ahmaud Arbery was was murdered and we saw the running community, uh, I think we're, we're hit really hard. Uh, I think for, especially for a lot of, of runners that may have not had had their moment with social justice, uh, a, a group and, uh, and a sport that can feel so insular that it, it kind of feels like you're in this utopian world where it's always beautiful, you're kind of quickly reminded that like, no, there are people within, there are factions within our running community that uh, carry the burden of society when they run. And when that happened, I, I noticed a lot of pain being felt uh, from the BIPOC community and especially black folk. They, they did not feel safe in running. They didn't know how to get back out there. And uh, this was essentially the perfect time for me to say, okay, this is the, this is the time, this is the time to do it so that we can create it as a place of healing. Uh, so the end of June is when we had the very first one and we had uh, six people come out and it was at first really silent because I think that was the first time for a lot of us that we were in a meeting up for a running group and there was no other white people. You know, I, I took a lot from, my readings in undergrad and in law school from 60s feminist movement uh, thinkers like this, the idea of consciousness raising is not novel. It's it's work that's been done by 60s black feminists, uh, and they created the idea of the black caucus so that when you caucus, you're able to more freely think about the issues that affect you without what's called the white gaze, feeling that you're being judged for feeling a certain way, for feeling that uh, your race has something to do with how you're being treated. So that those women were were the founding figures of, of my idea that I eventually took that and brought it to running. And I, and I felt that running can truly benefit from that. So going back to that first run, having that as our as our foundation, you know, it was silent at first. And then we ran by a police officer. And then uh, obviously Ahmad Arbery was top of mind. And someone talked about their first time experience being around a police officer and getting stopped. And then the crazy thing is everyone had that experience. Sorry, I'm getting a little bit emotional talking about it. So everyone, sad or not, everyone had that exact same experience. Uh, and then you know, we continued to talk about it, but as we went on, we kind of start graduating into talking about how can we help each other? How can we help our community? And by the end of the run, everyone had created their own initiative that they wanted to do and bring back to their community. And that was essentially like the setting stone for what was to come next. And, and every BIPOC run, 
you're just able to kind of express yourself in a way that is uh, whole and, un- and unfiltered. You talked about sort of moments of racial awakening. And I think that particularly within the white running community in North America, the murder of Ahmaud Arbery was one of those wake up moments for many of us, many of, you know, myself included as a, as a white runner. I think that many of many, many white folks in the running community have heard stories about people of color, particularly black men being stopped on runs seeming suspicious, being accused of crimes. But I think a lot of people, particularly in Canada, have a sense that this is an American issue and that this is something that doesn't happen very often. And one of the really unfortunate aspects here is that we often only hear about these stories on a national or international level when they result in someone's death. I'm wondering if you could share some of the stories about what that's been like in terms of interactions with the police while out on run? I mean, growing up, I I moved to Canada when I was 10 years old. And uh, I came from a place where uh, the color of my skin was the predominant uh, color in in that country. And coming to uh, a country where I, especially I moved to a small town uh, called Belleville, just outside of uh, Prince Edward County, where I think most people will know uh, it, it was. It's mostly white, and uh, myself and my sister and, and a handful of other people were basically the only brown people there. And you know, you're, you quickly stand out, and you hear a lot of essentially a lot of microaggressions. But I think the the big turning point for me in terms of my experiences with the police was after nine uh, eleven. After 9-11, I became essentially like a target for the police. We, there was a lot of changes in the way that police approached racial profiling after 9-11. And that was actually one of the reasons why I stopped going by Muhammad and I started going by Mo because I, I found that I was being targeted a lot less if my name wasn't Muslim or wasn't Muslim sounding. So for the most part, my, I'm, like I, I've been stopped number of times by police walking home late at night. But in terms of my running, I I, I mean, I've been lucky. I've been lucky in that for the most part, my my standing uh, because of my education and my position, I've been kind of relatively untouched by police. But that's not the same for um, my my friends, uh, especially my black friends. You know, the thing about it, which I think the most shocking to me when I hear those stories is like how blasé it it comes to feel for for BIPOC folk. It's just something that's a part of your daily life. I just recently heard a story from uh, Olivia, black runner with us, talking about how uh, her mother and her are, are picked on essentially by police officers because they drive a really nice car because they shouldn't be in a car like that. Uh, but that... You know, that experience is very universal, especially for black folk, especially for indigenous folk to be stopped and to be targeted and to be profiled uh, by the police simply because of the color of their skin. It became clear really quickly in these conversations during the BIPOC runs that every member of the crew had normalized the experience of being stopped and questioned by police for just going about their lives. Mo wanted to flip that narrative and instead normalize the sight of racialized bodies enjoying recreational runs together. I mean, that's a big part of our mission with with the BIPOC run is uh, we want people to see that, one, that it's, it's normal for us to be running because unfortunately, it's the norm for people to not see BIPOC folk out running. Like when they see us out running, it's something must be up unless i mean like unless you live in like in a, like a metropolis like a bigger city like toronto where that is a lot more common but i think as you move towards smaller cities smaller towns their stereotypes are very much perpetuated uh and and used as a weapon against a people of color so this leads us to what took place a few nights ago for you and a few members of your crew where you had an interaction with the Hamilton police. I'm wondering if you can tell us about what that what what happened and what that was like for you. 
So there were we were meeting for our Wednesday night BIPOC run. Myself, Vince, uh, who's a, a West Indian uh, brown man, Claire, who is a non-binary uh, black person, and Leo, a black man. Uh, I think fortunately for Leo, he was not a part of this situation. We were on our run and we were running downtown Hamilton. And where we normally meet, it's it's right near a police station, actually. So we were finishing up our run. We were kind of turning a corner. And we're in front of the police station. And I noticed that there is an, an, uh, an art exhibit that has been put up. And it was uh, an art exhibit to honor lost sisters and murdered sisters, uh, part of the FNMI community. And I was so taken back by that. And I told, uh, I told uh, at that point it was, it was Vince and Claire that were with me. I told them to stop and, and we, we started to take it in. To add some context here, the exhibit Mo was talking about was set up by the group Sisters in Spirit, whose mandate is to support and encourage the ongoing education of the public to the plight of murdered and missing Aboriginal women, girls, and trans people across Canada. The exhibit itself involves the draping of red dresses across trees, with a placard beneath each bearing the name and photo of a missing or murdered Indigenous woman. The purpose of the Red Dress Project is to draw attention to the gendered and racialized nature of violent crimes against Aboriginal women. The installation seeks to evoke a presence through the marking of absence. These exhibits can be found across Canada, and needless to say, they're visually stunning. They're intended to draw in passers-by and encourage visitors to stop and reflect, just like what Mo, Vince, and Claire were doing. And I, at that moment, I felt I thought it was so profound that one that the police would allow an exhibit like this to hang in front of their station because they're so complicit in it. But I also thought it was so profound that we were here trying to, you know, enact our own version of healing. And uh, we get to see this and honor lost sisters through this art exhibit. So we were there, I think, max 15, 20 seconds taking photos, taking videos. We were relatively silent, uh, taken aback by how, how moving this piece was. And at that point, we're like, okay, let's finish off our run and let's go. So we cross the street. I get a little bit ahead of, of Vince and Claire. And at that moment, I hear this loud, aggressive yell from a police officer. Hey, stop right there. Get back here. And I turn around and it was a white uh, woman and a black man. And they had already had stopped uh, Vince and Claire. So I, I start running back and I just catch the tail end of their conversation and it, it, the police officer was were inter interrogating them. And they're asking them, what are they doing? What are you doing here? And, and uh, Vince answered that we were, we were taking photos and we we're out on a run. And I, I interjected and I was like, is there, a, is there a problem? And then the police officer said that they had gotten a call from somebody that there was suspicious activity. And I said, what suspicious activity? Two brown people and a black person. And then the police, the white police officer says, well, you're responding to reports of suspicious activity because there's been a lot of hatred towards the police because of the defund the police movement and what we were doing was suspicious. She pulls out her notebook uh, to try to continue the interrogation process. And I said, are you detaining us? Luckily, I, I remembered some stuff from criminal law and criminal procedure from law school. And she said, no, I'm not detaining you. And then I, I quickly told her that, well, we will no longer be answering any more questions and we're leaving. And I think it took her back a bit because we were able to handle ourselves so well in that situation. And I quickly got the group out of there and uh, we ran back to our meeting spot about like 500 meters away. And I think everyone was just kind of looking at each other, uh, stunned. We just kind of had this like moment where we couldn't believe, like it was like a, it was like an out of body experience. Like we can't believe that, that that just happened to us. We spoke with corporate communicator Jackie Penman 
and Inspector Trina McSween from the Hamilton Police. They reiterated that a citizen had approached the two officers outside the police station, citing concerns about suspicious activity pertaining to Moe, Vince, and Claire. I asked these police reps about what constitutes suspicious activity or the need to follow up on such reports from citizens. They explained that they received dozens of calls per week about suspicious activity and that when calls come through their dispatch, they ask questions to ascertain the legitimacy of these concerns before deciding whether they warrant action from the police. But in this case, because the reports came in person and the alleged suspicious activity was happening right in front of the station in real time, the two officers who responded were acting appropriately in checking it out. For the record, Trina McSween identified herself to me as a woman of color and says that she takes concerns of racial profiling very seriously. As Mo mentioned, being stopped and questioned by police officers isn't anything new for the members of this group. They've all got stories of interactions with law enforcement for what they consider completely benign or even unexplained reasons. So I was curious about what made this particular situation so profound. What happened right after that? What were the conversations between you? What was the immediate response from your from your group about this? Uh, well, for me, I was really, really angry that that happened to us. Uh, I felt really, I felt really small. Uh, I felt really dehumanized. I couldn't believe that I live in the neighborhood. Like I live across the police station, and I couldn't believe that I was looked at as a target. And uh, and I think both for Vince and Claire, they echoed those sentiments. I think there was like a deep sense of hurt there, feeling like they didn't belong, that feeling that you were looked at as a problem. Uh, Claire asked us uh, to check in on them to make sure they got home okay. And Vince told me uh, the next day that he didn't sleep at all that night because he had a lot of anxiety. And... uh, and as I reflect on that, like it's uh, th- that's like really painful to think that your your friends can feel that way in their own neighborhood, uh, like they don't feel safe. And I think already for BIPOC folk, you don't normally feel safe generally as you walk around through life. Uh, but in a place where, especially I think for the BIPOC run, like that is supposed to be like our, our safe space, like our sacred space that we can go and escape from, you know, aspects of systemic racism, systemic oppression. And that was infiltrated in that moment. And we felt that like whatever power we did have by putting on the BIPOC run was quickly taken away from us, that those police officers reminded us that there is no safe space, that running isn't necessarily safe, especially for, for Claire. I mean, they, they have the intersectionality of being a non-binary person, a black person. And I can't even, like, yeah, I, I obviously experienced racism in my own way, but I'll never have that level of, uh, of marginalization within society. After we kind of all left and Claire, they, when they messaged me the next day to let me know that they're okay, like you could feel that like there was a a profound amount of hurt now within our, our running community after that event. Claire and Dean was one of the runners present during this interaction. Claire, who uses the pronouns they, them, shared some of what they wrote following the experience. They explained why they joined Air up there, how they felt during the night of the police stop, and about a run that the crew did one week following this incident. I started going to the BIPOC um, run this summer as a way to manage my moods and get myself outside, especially during the pandemic and moving my body. Um, I've looked forward to the BIPOC run each week, finding new community through movement I knew it would be very challenging to begin and I knew it would feel hard, but because of the non-competitive, non-judgmental vibe of the group, I kept returning and 
that's what's kept me going. I've been reflecting a lot about rest this year and running with this group has aided with my mental health, um, bringing me back into my body and breath, especially during a time that is um, so heavy and the constant readjusting that we have to do and um, how the pandemic has Im impacted marginalized bodies, especially during this time. I just didn't know what to think afterwards. Like when you're running, you get what the runner's high where there's a lot of deep breathing. So that's what I was feeling at the moment. Um, when I got home though, and recounted the story to my roommate, I realized I was deeply, deeply upset. And I felt enraged that my, what I call an active rest was disrupted through confrontation and intimidation by the cops. Um, it was a rude awakening to why I navigate through the world like I do, a little bit self-protective. If you're Black and you look young, you're automatically seen by the society as a troublemaker with ill intentions. And what is actually happening is cops armed with weapons are threatening the lives of Black and Brown folks for existing in life. We were just running. I have the right to move. I'm not hurting anyone. And my access to my rest and my well-being should not be seen as a threat. Running helps me through heavy emotions. Running with this BIPOC crew helps repair any feelings of like isolation that I have felt before. I feel like I can come together with these folks. We're just all there to support each other. I feel more inspired to take up space because I realize I have that support and I know where and who they are. Vince Kaber was the third member of the Air Up There group present during that interaction. Here are his reflections a few days after the incident. I usually run the sweep. I'm in the back of, of all the runners, making sure all the runners are comfortable, all the newcomers are safe, um, feeling good about themselves and, and finishing strong with the group. Because I was in the back, um, I was the first one to respond to a demanding tone from a, a, a female voice, demanding us to stop and return to them. I quickly turned around and said, for what? After I realized it was two officers jolting towards us. The next words were them questioning us regarding suspicious activity. And I said, well, I record all of our runs, especially tonight, which is Wednesday, BIPOC exclusive run night. I have been in so many situations like that with police interactions and driving where it does not end well for me, no matter what I say. So in that situation, knowing the basic rights that Mo presented to the officers, it shut them down because they know they knew that they were doing something that they shouldn't have. They knew they were trying to manipulate three people. I just want to run freely and help people run freely. I'm struck by the irony of this whole story, that three runners of color participating in a BIPOC community engagement run would stop to admire a public art exhibit dedicated to the atrocities committed against Indigenous women, and that they would be pursued by police for this very reason. According to numerous reports in Canada over the last several years, including the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, Three Indigenous women died each month in the years between 2016 and 2019. These are the victims of homicide, suspicious deaths, and deaths in police custody. Hundreds more are reported missing, although these numbers, both of deaths and disappearances, increase substantially when you consider anecdotal evidence from Indigenous activists and communities. Yeah, I mean, in policing, there is this. Uh, there's a tier system that exists, and I think the the cultural uh, system that exists within there, white people are tiered above, and BIPOC folks are tier below. It's like a caste system that exists in terms of who to serve and who to protect, and that's only more reinforced by, uh, especially I, I, for Hamilton, the police 
the police board and the city council, which has on record, on public record, have denounced the idea of systemic racism existing. They are completely shutting it down. They don't believe the stories. They don't think it exists. They don't think racial profiling exists. And when our so-called leaders and representatives don't believe the systemic racism and systemic oppression don't exist, police officers are empowered uh, to act a certain way to reinforce uh, a societal viewpoint that's being pushed forward by our city's most powerful people that racism isn't a problem and that we can target you because of the color of your skin. I understand that a lot of those conversations in the public forum with the Hamilton City Council have taken place quite recently. Did you attend those those public forums? I I mean I I attended it in in a way that like it it was made uh, public through uh, YouTube Live, so right, any right. any resident was able to watch them. And uh, the city council invited the the police chief to give a presentation on what defunding the police could look like, and to have a discussion on systemic racism. Uh, and many of the city councilors, other than two or three, believe that systemic racism doesn't exist. They don't believe that it's a problem. Uh, the Hamilton police chief only recently recognized systemic racism exists, but he doesn't think that it's a prevalent problem within his institution. Uh, it's only recently, too, that uh, a report, an independent report was released that discussed the Hamilton police is uh, intervention during Pride last year uh, that led many of people within the queer community to feel unsafe. And we have come to see, especially in, in Hamilton, that the, the city council and the Hamilton police are unwilling to engage in honest and thoughtful conversation with the BIPOC community because they don't think that there's a problem there. Mm. I think the one thing that stands out to me is they keep saying that this is an American problem. This is not a Hamilton problem. And they've also, I mean, they're very steadfast in that viewpoint. And it was only recently that they had, that the Hamilton police services had stopped the very racist tactic of, of carding. And one of the counselors said that he doesn't think that they stopped carding he, because of racism. He thinks that the, the reason why carding failed was not because of racism. It's, it's because that we didn't do carding in racialized neighborhoods, that he doesn't think carding in itself, stopping somebody is racist. Uh, he feels that it should be done more and it should be done in within marginalized and racialized communities. He thinks there should be more carding within racialized communities in Hamilton. Yeah, he felt that the, the practice of carding wasn't a failure because of racism. It was because that it wasn't implemented in a way that he felt would have been successful, which would have been doing it within racialized and marginalized community in places where he quote unquote says there, there are high rates of crime, not recognizing the fact that it is racist. He feels it's not a racist thing to do. I listened to hours of recordings from the Hamilton City Council meeting with the police department that Mo was referring to. You can find these on the City of Hamilton YouTube channel. I didn't hear the overt denial of the existence of systemic racism that Mo heard, with the exception of one counselor, Terry Whitehead, who was also the counselor in favor of increased carding within racialized communities. Carding is the process of stopping, interrogating, and documenting people, predominantly those of color, when no particular offense is under investigation. According to Amnesty International, the process of carding in Canada disproportionately affects people of color, specifically Black men, and results in racial profiling, harsher sentencing, mistreatment in prison, denial of services, and various other injustices. In recent follow-ups, Mo did concede that he had inferred, rather than heard explicitly, that the majority of the Hamilton City Council denies the existence of systemic racism. He says that his opinions were informed by counselors' comments in past meetings, tweets, 
and in general dismissals of the issues. Following the night that they were stopped, Mo posted about his experiences on both the Air Up There social media platforms as well as on his own personal Twitter account. He says that these tweets garnered a lot of support from his community, and that subsequently, he's had a few follow-up interactions with representatives from the Hamilton Police Department. They confirmed his version of events. That we were, yes, in front of the police station, that we only stood back at the sidewalk, that we were there for no longer than 30 seconds, taking videos, and then we crossed the street, and then the police officers pursued us. But the representative stopped short of offering an apology, something Mo feels strongly that he and his friends are owed. Even though the police determined that their officers acted appropriately in following up on the claim of suspicion, Mo was more concerned about what he says was the aggressive tone and body language used by the officers that made them feel unsafe. Anybody, regardless of their, their education, their societal status, knows when someone is approaching you in a friendly way and when they're approaching you in a way that's going to make you feel afraid. And that officer approached us in that way. And uh, the police representative had no comment for that. Uh, and they asked me what I wanted. And I said that, uh, I mean, I know that they couldn't give me much, obviously, because there are powers above this person. I wanted an apology from that officer and from the Hamilton police. And they wouldn't give me that. Instead, they gave me two options. I can file a complaint with the uh, Ontario Police uh, OPIRD, an internal review uh, directive, I think is what they're called, or the supervisor of that said officer can talk to them about what happened in that situation, which I think would be fruitless anyways. And that was it. That was, that was the extent of our conversation. Uh, it was of concern to them because they're the public, one of the community liaison officers. It was concern to them because they said that they don't want to be uh, portrayed in that way in the media, that they aren't friendly, that uh, an exhibit in front of their police station can't be approached. It, it kind of felt like they were trying to do some damage control and that they weren't really trying to engage in, in thoughtful conversation as to like how to make BIPOC pe- people feel safe within their own neighborhood. Mo has filed a report with the OIPRD, the Office of the Independent Police Review Director, but he says he doesn't think much will come of it since they don't typically address systemic issues. really had hoped for an apology, you haven't received one. What else would you hope to come out of this interaction? What next steps, ideally, would you like to see happen um, involving the community at large and the Hamilton Police Department, City Council? What would your ideal next steps be? uh, And what good do you think could potentially come of this experience? Uh, I think what really needs to happen, especially I think in, in, in the Hamilton community, especially, is that there needs to be an acknowledgement that systemic racism and systemic oppression is real and alive right now. That it is not the basis of historical trauma. It's actually a living, breathing thing that is happening right now. I think Vince best captured it that like he felt that he's glad that it happened to us because we were able to take that uh and we can hopefully turn it for good. And, and I think the number one thing that we need to see is these city councils need to look at us, look at us and see, no, we were the target of systemic racism and, and, and racial profiling. And that's really step one in building that trust towards something that can make BIPOC community feel that there is some sort of trust there. There's no way that we can get to a place where we can begin to create solutions unless one side believes that systemic racism and systemic oppression exists right now. We're speaking today on Thursday, October 15th. This is uh, one week and one day since this took place. And yesterday, you and your Air Up There crew held your typical weekly 
as scheduled BIPOC exclusive run. What was that like last night, all of you coming together again? What was the response like from your community? Can you tell us about what came out of last night's congregation? So I, I put out a message uh, on Twitter and on Instagram inviting people, BIPOC folk, to come join us for our BIPOC exclusive run. And what we would we would be doing would be we were going to do three laps of the police station of where we were stopped uh, as a way of protesting what happened to us and to take back these streets so that there is recognition that these streets are as much ours as any resident. I, I know what happened last week now is probably going to deter a lot of BIPOC folks from, you know, coming to it. And, uh, but I wanted to try to re- recreate what we had previously. I wanted to, people to feel that this space, our collective community was safe for them to be a part of. And, uh, I was, I was so shocked. Like normally for the BIPOC run, it's like three or four people that come out and we had like 20 people show up. We had people that walked, we had kids that showed up. It felt so empowering. And I think what was also really powerful was the the olive branch that was extended from lots of white runners uh, that reached out to us. It, It was a really, a beautiful extension of what the running community can be and that there's this acknowledgement that you know when a BIPOC runner comes to a running group it does like the running like I say this all the time that running for BIPOC folks doesn't exist in a vacuum that whatever institutional issues that plagues them outside of running they carry that into the running group felt like an acknowledgement from the greater running community that Look, we know that this is going to happen to you in running, but we're there to support you. And uh, so we went on our run. Uh, we ran around the police station uh, and then we ran through our downtown. We had uh, a frank discussion about what happened to people. And I think it was a really strong display of the resiliency of, of the BIPOC running community. Mo gets that there is a lot to take in here and that it can feel overwhelming. But he's got some advice for listeners about how they can increase the equity and accessibility of our running community. In my experience working in social justice, you can easily burn out and you can really easily lose enthusiasm for that work because the victories within social justice are few and far between and they are often incremental. It can be something as small as making sure to ask somebody for their pronouns. It can be picking a place where your running group meets so that it caters to all income levels. Like some people can't get downtown and there needs to be a running crew uptown in low-income communities. Don't like you, you don't want to lose that momentum and you want to find a way to keep that fire going. Uh, because it's the reality is, is you have to accept that it's a lifelong battle that I, I truly don't think you're, we're going to have a complete disbandment of the system that we're in right now. There's going to be constant tweaks for at least our lifetime, but you have to find a way to continue to be engaged. If you can make one person of color, black person, indigenous person, feel comfortable in the space that you're in, that's a victory. And and it's essentially putting those little things together over time. It's a it's another drop in the bucket till it gets full. I don't I, I can't stress this enough. As as hard and as difficult it is for you to engage in that process, it is 30, 40, 50 times harder for an indigenous person or a black person that has a number of intersectionality to also engage in that process. Like it takes a lot of emotional burden for someone that is already oppressed by the system to have to engage it. And that's why it's so important to get that 
collective buy-in, especially in the running community, because for the most part, the running community is so beautiful and so connected and so welcoming. And it's now just like ushering that power towards collective success and the collective being BIPOC folk as well. I know that this has been a really challenging week. I know that it's reflective of greater challenges that you've said you've had to experience throughout your life. I'm wondering what are you excited for and what are you hopeful for, for the future of Air Up There and for yourself as a runner moving forward? Uh, Well, for Air Up There, we do have some plans to hopefully become a registered uh, nonprofit uh, our plan is to create uh, a discretionary fund to allow for better access for runners. You know, right now, the big struggle is making sure that, especially I think for a lot of BIPOC folk, they're newer to running. And, uh, you know, runners know that like running is not cheap. Uh, and, you know, if you want people to run through winter, they're going to have to be able to afford a jacket or shoes. And, uh, that's the, that's the next big step for, for air up there is creating a space, uh, and, and an organization where we can now not only emotionally support our runners, but we want to support them financially. I mean, for myself as a runner, you know, uh, and I think a lot of runners will, will relate to this, like, you know, COVID threw a wrench in a lot of our running plans, but what it's allowed me to do is, is to take, uh, my own experiences within running and try to apply that to make someone else's experiences better. It's just hoping that my running and uh, my voice can make it easier for the next person to find their way into running as well. Thank you to Mo, Claire, and Vince for so openly sharing their stories with us this week. The Air Up There BIPOC exclusive run happens every Wednesday evening at 6.30. So check it out if you're in Hamilton, Ontario. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ShakeOut Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and leave a review. You might just win a pair of Asics Dynablast shoes along with a complete running outfit. This contest is running for one more week, so be sure to check out runningmagazine.ca to learn more about how you can enter. Thanks as always for tuning in. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll talk again next week.